You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has Mika. I am here with Yitzhak Kolakowski. Yitzhak joins me from his hotel room in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which, of course, any of you who are movie fans might remember, of course, it's featured in that biopic of Jim Thorpe, All-American, starring Burt Lancaster, I believe, as Jim Thorpe. But I've been to Carlisle many times. Yitzhak, thanks for taking time out here. I don't have anything else to do. I, you know, what else are you going to do in a hotel room except talk about movies? Jim Thorpe, you know, they picked him up his body and buried him in in the Poconos just so they could name the town after Jim Thorpe. And we're going to talk about another town with an interesting name, I think a little bit later. So there, there's a Tushdale from the, from the beginning to the end there. Yes, yes, we definitely, you never know where we're going to go on this program. But, I, you know, I, I don't know if the hotel room that you are ensconced in has Turner Classic Movies, but I know that you could probably get onto the Criterion channel because, of course, you have a subscription to it that I always mooch from you. And I happen to catch a film that I think is worth discussing, and that is the film It Always Rains on Sunday. Now, it was directed by Robert Hamer. Uh, Robert Hamer had a uh, career post-World War II, and he was considered one of the talented British directors. He made a couple of big-budget films that did not do as well. The film that uh, he's most really famous for, and the film he sort of felt was sort of like haunted by, because he felt that he had he had done a lot more than that, was the Allegheny's incredible Kind Hearts and Coronets, which, of course, is sort of the epitome of a dark comedy, where you have, I think, Allegheny's plays every single victim of an aristocratic family that's being knocked off by a relative. And he's very famous for that. But two years before he made this film, the film that I want to talk about, which is It Always Rains on Sunday from 1947, he had been one of the directors of this anthology-type film called Dead of Night. And I mentioned to you off-pod, that's the type of film you would love. It's a British horror film, the first one after World War II. For years, there had been a ban on horror films in Britain. And this was a film that had 
various sections in it. There was a framing device, and each character would tell a story, and that story was directed by a different British director, and uh, Cavalcanti, Basil Dearden, and Robert Hamer was given his chance to direct a section of that film, Dead of Night, in 1945, and he chose the Indian-born, strangely named Googie Withers, who seems to have been in many, many films in England at that time. I wasn't familiar with her until I saw this film. I have to say she has a striking resemblance to my mother. But again, maybe that's because many of the women of that period of the images that I have from that post-World War II, there's a certain type of look of people who had gone through the war. Googie uh, was in that little section of Dead of Night, and Hamer used her in an interesting, forceful way. After that film, which was a, a quite a big success, by the way, they made a number of anthology films in the 40s and early 50s. One of them was called Quartet, which had four different stories by Noel Coward. So they sort of got it, what it was like to do this anthology type of film. In fact, again, we'll talk about Dead of Night a different time, but many of those aspects of Dead of Night, those little horror vignettes, were recycled by people like Rod Serling in The Twilight Zone and in other ways. So Dead of Night is a sort of, I'm not really recommending it because we'll talk about it a different time, but it really was the springboard that gave Robert Hamer the chance for, for Ealing Studios to make a, a real major film. And this is the film I'm talking about. This film is really one 24-hour period in a section of uh, I guess you would call it a suburb of London, but really it's a grimy suburb. It's called Bethnal Green. There's no green there. And it's clear that this was post-World War II. Uh, you can still see that it's, it's a whether I don't know how much was done at the studio. There clearly was a number of shots that were done on location. And what they would try to really bring to life is the bustling. And remember, it's a Sunday. So a bustling market aspect of that place. It has pubs. It has places, pawn shops. It has music stores, uh, fish stores, all different types of stores all huddled together, people really rubbing elbows. You really get the sense. And and, and Hamer does a little bit of a, I guess, somewhat of a amateurish job here. With a, You can hear a lot of dubbing. In other words, it's not real street sound. You can see that they just had, you know, once in a while you hear a Yiddish voice or you hear a person screaming or something else. But I think it does bring to life what it was like to live in a uh, a, a a tough suburban but not suburban in the sense of the California beautiful broad suburbs or Tom's River or Jackson in, in New Jersey. We're talking here about elbow to elbow, everybody noticing what everybody else is doing. It's just not in the heart of the royal London. And the rain starts falling in the beginning of the film. And as the raindrops are falling, you can see that the newsstand is being opened. The newsstand is owned by Mr. Hyams, an old Jewish man played by, with a very uh, pronounced European accent, is an actor called Mayor Tselnikir. Mayor Tselnikir. He lived to be close to 90 years old. Uh, and he was pretty active. So Mayor Zelnikir tells this boy, he says, maybe you want me to deliver the, the papers and you'll read them. Okay. So the boy goes and delivers the papers. And of course, you can see as all these exposition goes, there has been a, a prison breakout. 
and uh, Hamer shows you the desperate fellow who was broken out of prison, and you soon realize from all the chattering that's going on that he's someone who was a pretty, somewhat of a high-level crook, a dangerous fellow who has broken out of some prison, and they expect him to come back to Bethnal Green because that's where he hung out, and those were the streets that sort of spawned him. But meanwhile, we are introduced to so many people who are on this street, who live there, and specifically uh, Googie Withers, who clearly uh, is in a second marriage. She's married to a man 15 years older than herself, and they live in a small flat. There's a very thin wall that separates her and her husband from his two teenage daughters from a previous marriage. And right away, you can see that there's a lot of friction between these girls and their stepmother, especially the younger girl, who, as the, the film indicates, has come in the middle of the night at three in the morning, Sunday morning, from a, a rendezvous that she's had with a saxophone player who has his own band. That saxophone player is the son of the Jewish newspaper uh, vendor. So <laughs> there's old man Hyams, that's Sally Hyams, and then there's Maury Hyams, who is the saxophone player who is who is married and fooling around with this 16 or 17 year old girl who's running around uh, coming to his club till, you know, all hours of the night. And the other daughter is a good girl. She's a brunette, unlike the blonde who is clearly running around playing by Susan Shaw, who was in a number of British films of that era. And besides the two, there's another a boy who we're introduced to later. It's not clear whether that boy is actually the progeny of this second marriage or that boy also comes from the previous marriage. But clearly, the little boy, who also features prominently in the film, views the stepmother as mum, whereas the teenage daughters, not so, not so obvious. In some ways, they want to respect her. But Googie Withers playing this mother, you know, she, she plays her with such bitterness. Her name is Rose, but she's not much of a Rose in this film. Uh, she really is constantly angry. You can see that she just wants those girls up to make tea. Uh, she wants them to do their job. She feels that she's doing too much in the house. Clearly, she has settled for a domesticity that she's not happy about. Her husband, who seems to be a sort of vuncular, decent fellow, not obviously very short on charisma and short in stature as well, has a very English sort of mean to him where of course, he always takes a nap in the in the drawing room at this time. He always has his paper at this time. And he goes out to play darts as his love every Sunday night at the pub. And Rose, his wife, clearly resents the type of box that she's been put into. But everybody is in this box. Everyone is part of a post-war period where the survivors are just struggling to get by. Well, as you know, it's going to happen. The escaped convict, played by John McCallum, his name is Tommy Swan. Uh, it turns out that that McCallum and Withers were actually, I believe, married during the time that this was made. And there's a, a tremendous amount of erotic energy between them. You know that he's heading for her house, but it's still a surprise when she goes out to the shed uh, to get some sort of item that she needs to fix a cracked window and she discovers that Tommy Swan is there and he puts his hand over her mouth and you can see that although there's terror there's also excitement and here she's willing to harbor 
a criminal. The police are going around telling everyone that if anybody harbors Tommy Swan, it's two years in prison. They are going to do their utmost to create a dragnet to find this dangerous fellow. Swan, she smuggles him into her house. And incredibly, because of the very structured lifestyle of her husband, she is able to hide him in their own bedroom. The bedroom that, and, and it turns out, you know, it, it, through a flashback that, and there aren't many flashbacks, but through a very effective flashback of her looking in the mirror, we see her transported to the years when she was in love with Swan and how Swan met her and that she wasn't even, a, a, she was a, a blonde at that in those days, similar to her stepdaughter, and that she was carefree and she was a barmaid. And Swan spoke to her about a better life and had given her a very expensive engagement ring. And they were talking about having a life together, but he had one more job to do up north. Well, it turns out, of course, that job up north was a, a, a criminal act with which he was caught and sent to prison in the bedroom of his former fiance's house. He strips off his shirt, and you can see where the cat of nine tails has been beating him. And he, he speaks to her about how terrible life is in prison and how, how he's been beaten and how, how he doesn't want to go back and he cannot serve his sentence because of the cruelty that occurs there. And he would do anything to escape that he wants to escape to South America. And she's willing to give him the ring that she's kept, that engagement ring. And he is so oblivious, so self-centered, so key on just surviving no matter what, that he's even forgotten that that was the ring he gave her. And that's a, a beautiful scene, a beautiful piece of dialogue, great acting by Googie Withers, uh, the way she's able to keep it together there about the ring that was given to her. It's interesting, you know, that itself, the the dynamic of a woman trapped, a woman willing to, is, is typical film noir material. She's willing to do things dangerous, willing to threaten her own marriage, threaten her stability for someone who's obviously a criminal and a bum. But what really makes this film stand out is that Amor allows it to be about all the ancillary characters as well. <laughs> the two daughters, each one, the good daughter, the wild daughter, uh, you get a sense about what they're about. And other characters that are primary are the police. And again, there's a sort of a, a, a humorous sense about the police going about their business. This film shares with its American counterparts the police post-World War II as being effective. You know, I've talked about last week and in previous weeks about police in the 30s and early 40s being bumblers and and people couldn't find anything. They couldn't find uh, their rear end or from their elbow here, post-World War II, generally police and military officials are treated with respect and shown to be effective. Sometimes they are also on the make, and sometimes they're also corrupt, but generally the good ones are usually very intelligent, and this was the case here in this film as well, that they sort of have figured out. There's other, un, as we said in Yiddish, Yitzchak, Unterweltnikiros. There's these other sort of people who who... <laughs> who prey upon the weak. There's three guys who, it's clear, have knocked off a truck during the night, and they're trying to, they have some stolen roller skates, which they're trying to hock, and they're trying to find someone. There's a, a fence that they're trying to to give it to. And they also are trying to give it to a fellow known as Lou Hyams. Lou Hyams is another son of Sally. And he is the local gangster. He's the local gambler. He's the one who's fixing the fights. 
He's the one who is involved, has his hand everywhere. He's got his hand in all sorts of semi-legal businesses, but he can never be taken down. His brother has a record and music store. And at night, he, he calls himself Maury Hyams, the man with sax appeal. The actor who plays him, Sidney Taffler, is shown to be, although a, a, a family man who loves his child, but cheats on his wife consistently. And, and his wife knows it. His wife tells him, you know, I know you've been running around with Shixis. You know? uh, when he speaks to his brother, the, the gangster who comes in, the sort of the mobster, he says, I don't know what's with Sadie. She's just so meshuga today. So there is this very obvious Jewish aspect here. And what really struck me about the film, it's been praised in so many corners as a, a an incredible slice of life, a progenitor of, of the kitchen sink films of the later 50s and early 60s, the most distinct British noir film, because uh, there's a, a Tommy Swan at the end is is running away from the police and does desperate things. And, you know, the, the filming there is, is extremely exciting and bleak. But I didn't see anyone. And I went on to JSTOR today uh, to do a search from the, in the scholarly articles about Robert Hamer and about this film. And what struck me as the projections as Smicha is there are five Jewish characters and all of them are flawed. And I would say in, in many ways, you could interpret this as almost, uh, you know, a very anti-Semitic dismissive portrayal of Jews in England. Uh, let me just, let me just be Mona the Drochem here. Let me count the ways. You have, let's talk about Maury Hyams. Maury Hyams is a philanderer. Maury Hyams is taking advantage of a, of a juvenile, cheating on his wife, clearly a, a vain person who doesn't care at all about anything about except himself. That's him. Lou is a little less vain, but clearly is profiting over everything. And in fact, he tries to bring the other good daughter under his wing by offering her some sort of fod faux job in a beauty parlor, which he believes eventually will turn her into a prostitute, which is what the, the film sort of indicates. And, and and he always, of course, keeps his hands clean. Again, a, a typical, he's, he's not even the glorious thug who, who you can admire him for his grit and energy. He's just the guy behind the scenes manipulating people. The third uh, Hyams sibling is Bessie, who works together with the Salvation Army and is the good girl. But the goodness that she has is only displayed in the, her work with the with the British, with the Anglican priest <laughs> that she works with and that she tries to convince her brothers to donate money. The brother, when he makes money off of a fight that he's fixed, <laughs> he comes in and donates the money of 50 pounds to the children's center that's being done under the auspices of the church. The father, you know, talks about uh, his brother who lives in Stanford Hill, which we know, of course, was the, the Jewish section of London. And he talks about how his brother, oh, he has a big house and he has a car, but he doesn't own any of them. You know, he, he just has them on credit. Again, indicating that even the Jews that had it made were basically living beyond their means, trying to impress others, you know. So my, my point is, is that Although, you know, everyone else in the film, you sort of get their Stalin nobility as they're trying to break out of things of their lives, trying to figure things out after the world has been destroyed by World War II, as Britain is trying to get itself on its feet. Hamer has the snakes in the grass are the Jews. 
And I, you know, Yitzchak, on this platform, we've talked about this other film that came out of England about uh, 15 years earlier called Mr. Cohen Takes a Walk. And Mr. Cohen Takes a Walk also had a father and children, but he, of course, was a department store magnate. And we talked about how sympathetic the portrayal was, how this never straying from the fact he was Jewish, but actually extolling some of the Jewish sensibilities that the character had, some of the hardworking aspects of it. This film, I believe, is really reflective of of an embittered England. It, it, It clearly, it stays with you, but your sense of the Jew there is that the, the the Jew is the Jew is Fagin, the Jew is the parasite. The thing is, is the Cohen movie was pre-war. This is post-war. Is it embitterment because they're blaming the Jews for the war, and that's what's as opposed to feeling a rachmanis after all they went through? And you think that's where that's coming from? The you know, you probably have to be a, a a a better sociologist than myself and knowing about Britain to be able to answer that question. I I do think that. Despite Britain's victory, it, it, it came with a lot of shame. It came with an understanding that they would be uh, diminished in the world. You know, if you're going to take that theory, you know, and, and 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 really apply it to Britain in general, it might also explain the recalcitrance and and the way they dealt with Eretz Yisrael in Palestine, right? In other words, you would think. That they, instead of having to fight the Brits as Menachem Begin and the Irgun and the Lehi gang did to get England to leave Israel and to allow the state of Israel to be formed in order to be the site of refuge for Jews everywhere being administered by Jews, the Brits hung on. And, and, you know, and of course, you know, the, the, the King David Hotel bombing and other things, uh, you know, have always been bandied about to show what Jewish terrorism was. So, you know, I, I think it probably is connected to what was going on in, in Israel at the time. There was a sense that the Jews don't necessarily deserve the sympathy and understanding, even though what they had been through. I don't think that was the feeling in America, but I think you're, I think it might be onto something that, you know, this film could get away with America wasn't as affected on the home front as England was. That's right. Even even though you had the isolationists calling it the Jews war, um, I think especially once, you know, uh, the I, images from the Holocaust started to filter through of the concentration camps. I think, you know, in America, you had a lot of sympathy. I'm not sure exactly, you know, what happened in, no attack in the homeland other other than Pearl Harbor, meaning no, no. No cities were were bombed by the by the Blitzkrieg, you know, as as opposed to England, where the the you know they they even though there was no land battles, yeah, of course, uh, of, of course, and and the, the displacement and the and, and some you know the, again the amount of the population of, of, of death, and it's you know it, it could even be implied, although I'm not sure that maybe in this film Rose's predecessor, you know, the George Sandigate's first wife might have died somehow because of some uh, effect of the war. And, you know, she married him perhaps in the war. So, uh, you know, there was clearly a lot of uh, a struggle and and still dealing with that rationing. But but to have the Jew as being the one who was driving the fancy car, as Maury does, that eventually um, Tommy Swan steals and tries to make his escape with 
Maury's super fancy uh, sort of, you know, I guess it was sort of like a Jaguar or something like that. That was a very shtadi car, as we would say. As much as I enjoyed the film, and I was impressed by how it was able to bring to life without maudlin sentimentality what it was like to live in this tough little section of London. I was, it, it troubled me that the Jews were the, in, in a way, the, the, the demons who seemed to lurch and relish the squalor that they were at. In fact, when Maury loses his wife spoiler um uh there's a wonderful scene where rose is hiding her lover tommy in the bedroom and the the wild daughter vi played by susan shaw the blonde wants to get her mirror so she could really gussy herself up properly but the door is locked and uh when rose realizes that she runs up to make sure that she doesn't smack the smash the door open and there's a fight between the two and um rose rips vi's sort of like you know her going out dress and vi retaliates by you know with uh, trying to pull rose's hair and calling her a fat cow and you know they start slapping each other so during that scene so she feels that she's going to leave the house vi she's not going to stay any longer with uh, in a house with rose she's going to go to join her paramour maury and who will make her into a singing star and take her to the take her to in his band and train her to use her voice and she could just you know have a career as it would be of course when she comes to maury's club and maury is playing the saxophone and you know giving her the eye maury's wife comes in and sadie shows up and said here he comes and Sadie sits down right with, with Vi and says, well, you're going to be taking care of him now. Here's the keys. Uh, you know, you're never going to get much money from him. He's always going to tell you he's got money, but he hides it. You're going to have to take care of him now. I'm leaving. Goodbye. And, uh, Maury ends up, uh, Maury, uh, realizing what's going on, begs Sadie to stay and cries. And of course, Sadie's going to leave him no matter what. So the the villains, in a way, get their comeuppance. Of course, it's, uh, Tommy also is eventually caught by the lease and, and taken back. But uh, Rose, when she realizes that a newspaper reporter has discovered that Tommy has been hiding there and that when Tommy wants to make his escape, Rose begs him to go to the police or tell the reporter that he forced himself on her. Because she doesn't want to go, she doesn't want to be jailed for two years for helping him. He hits her. He hits her and knocks her down. And she realizes that everything that she had been harboring was a shallow, empty dream. And that now she might have, based on the way she was connected to the past that was nebulous, but somehow alive within her, she ends up sacrificing any little stability that she has and the connection and love she has with her younger son. So there's a very subtle scene where she goes into the kitchen, locks both doors, and opens the 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 oven and turns on the gas. And you know, it seems like she's ready to commit suicide because of what she has done. Well, because the newspaper reporter tells the police where Tommy is, the cops send over a, a policeman to arrest Rose. 
for helping and abetting uh, the escaped convict. And you can see a scene. And again, without spelling anything out, you can see an ambulance taking her away from the home. Uh, the very last scene in the film, poor George, who had been playing darts at night and was oblivious of everything that was going on, uh, is seen at his wife's bedside. And he was telling her, you'll get better and you'll come home and the, the kids are going to be happy to see you. Is that really going to happen? You know, who knows, right? The ending is ambiguous. It's all happened in the, and, and he walks home as the 24-hour period has ended, that rainy Sunday. Will the police let her go? Will she be prosecuted? Unlike American films that had to give a very distinct ending and tell you what was going to go on, there's no big hug and reconciliation. Will she try to kill herself again? Will she be arrested? You know, none of this is really explained, but I think that's part of the beauty of the film. Yes, beautiful film, effective, moving, anti-Semitic at the same time. And I think one of the things that the, the film also celebrates in a way is sort of the English ability to be satisfied with this sort of lower middle class existence with a, a, a cynical aspect towards aspiring to be beyond your station. And yeah, I'm okay with being from Bethnal Green. I'm okay being part of this dynamic of just a, a lower to middle class person who goes out and struggles and goes and buys and spends his time in the market, haggling, buying, getting what is necessary, the stiff upper lip, stolid um, English reliability. I think that's another thing that the film is sort of pointing to, and I think really uh, indicating that it's something noble and great about the English character, despite how, you know, to an American audience, they would say, you know, how can they stand doing that? But, you know, that is, uh, I think, a, a snapshot of this very, very significant and very much overlooked film uh, in, in, in Britain's history. Now, one of the things that we talked about off pod, Yitzchuk, was the fact that this film, which celebrates this sort of middle class, lower to middle class populace and sees them and gives them life uh, without sentimentality was is really those people are the people that really make up in many ways the the average American that's part of the game show phenomena, right? The and 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 in no in, in whether it's let's make a deal or or any of the shows where or that these people are plucked from, they're usually plucked from People who are, you know, lower to middle class, people who 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 see a possibility of coming to wherever this show is filmed, and maybe they're going to be called on, and maybe who knows they'll have the chance to win the big money. Um, and 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 part of the reason why people sitting at home in their televisions enjoyed watching them is because they related to them. That might be them with the sixty thousand dollar question um, that they would try to answer. And I, I guess there was no program that really embodies that more, that lower to middle class sensibility, especially when it comes to being in the marketplace and knowing the prices than the longest running game show in television history. And maybe the longest one of the there are more episodes of this program than any other television program. And that is The Price is Right. This th last week, Bob Barker died at the age of 99. 
And I know that you you did a little bit of looking into Barker and his career as a game show host. Yes. Yeah, so he, he actually started a local radio in Hollywood. He grew up on an Indian reservation. He was Native American. I didn't know that. So that, that's our connection, of course, to Carlisle. Carlisle had the school to, for Native Americans. This is a, a very dark place for Native American people, and it's uh, very uncomfortable to hear. And he, his own grandfather was was in the residential school here. And in any event, I also wanted to mention that Bob Barker's first television program was actually, and it was mentioned in that first episode that he was on, that a town in New Mexico took the name Truth or Consequences. The show, which was Bob Barker's first television show, the, tr- the show Truth or Consequences began on the radio in 1940 and transitioned to television in 1950. Right. And, and let's just explain to people that it was a more extreme version of Let's Make a Deal. There would be this trivia question that most people weren't able to answer. It wasn't even really the question was more of a ponder. Right, so, sort of thing which which you almost had to be a psychic to be able to answer. And if you couldn't answer it, the consequence would be you'd have to do some sort of ridiculous stunt to make a fool of yourself, right? Sometimes the stunts weren't necessarily related to that. So one of the stunts was that uh, they said they would come and film an episode in the first town in America that changes its name to truth or consequences. And so the town of Hot Springs, New Mexico, changed its name in 1950 to truth and con- truth or consequences, New Mexico. And every year they would have a fiesta they actually still have to celebrate the TV show Truth or Consequences. And when uh, Bob Barker was invited for... Barker became the host in 1956. But he had it. You know, they mentioned how they found him, that... You know, they were looking for a new host. Ralph Edwards, I think, had done the show on the radio. Right. And and on television as well. And but he had different hosts as well. It was it was always his show, but he had different hosts. So, like I said, in the end of 1956, he brought on Bob Barker. We heard on the radio locally and he was so impressed with him that he just uh, he gave him the job. And and it was very interesting because on one hand. This young man, he has a very bright future. We're going to hear his name. And I'm sure there are hundreds of people who have done, who that's been said about. And we, you know, they had 15 minutes of fame and then that was it. But it was almost prophetic how, you know, he was being introduced that, you know, this is, this is someone who's going to be famous. The Truth or Consequence program and Price is Right was five programs a week. So this wasn't like you were in a television series every every week. This was every day. And Truth or Consequences, which later became syndicated, Barker was doing both at the same time. Truth or Consequences went off the air in 75. For three years, he'd already been doing The Price is, uh, is Right from 1972. So he was actually a, a, a game show host of two popular programs and you know, unlike Johnny Carson, who always took time off and spent weeks away on vacation, it was almost all Barker all the time. So you really have to uh, marvel at his longevity. For me personally, uh, watching Bob Barker, it, he reminded me, he looked very similar to my grandpa, to my father's father. So Go- Googie Withers looks like my mother and Bob Barker looks like your grandfather. Yeah. Like my grandfather, Joseph Kowalkowski. So that's... Uh... 
that that that's the connection there as well. But uh, you know, it was always just a you know an event every day. If I wa- if I wasn't at school, there was no question what we're watching. Whatever at eleven o'clock in the morning was going to be the price is right. But yes, let's talk about the appeal of the program. Again, Barker, you know, and again, there were intimations that he had fondled a lot of his beautiful um, presenters and people who would... My father would say uh, that, you know, whenever Bob Barker at the end of the show would say, please spay or neuter your pets, he said, he would often say Bob Barker himself maybe should be neutered. That's right. He should be neutered because he clearly was um, having a good time with all the... Um, you know, very lovely uh, presenters that uh, he would, you know, talk about their talk about them in 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 very affectionate ways. It wasn't just Barker's talent; it was the concept of the show of taking someone like a denizen of Bethnal Green, London, but it, maybe it would be Des Moines, Iowa, or maybe it would be Compton in Los Angeles, and say, "How much is that?" Uh, bottle of uh, you know of 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 Nesquik. How much is that chocolate bar? How much is that that can of olives? Because this really spoke to them when they were in the grocery store. How much was that Lazy Boy chair that you're dreaming of buying? You'd look forward to seeing these different games, whether it was Plinko or you know the the Alpine Yodler going up the hill and the all these different games and the big wheel, there's just excitement. Right. But, but, but it, but it's all connected to a price of something. It's all connected to look, you, you would love to know, you know what these prices are. They tantalize you because, but you, but they're out of reach, but you are aware because you are a budget conscious person. It's, it's, it's zeroing in on the person who doesn't have, who recognizes that these things are beyond them because they're not in his bank book to be able to afford them. And the, and the person who wins is the person who somehow is super aware, the ultimate consumer who's super aware of what these prices are. The people who lived in Park Avenue that were the subject of all the of all the uh, screwball comedies, they couldn't care less. George Bush, when he ran for president against Bill Clinton, he didn't know what it was like to stand in line and and, and, and recognize what it was to buy stuff at a grocery store because he had been he lived such a pampered uh, gold spoon in his mouth existence. The price is price is right. There's a reason why. Come on down. There's a reason why they're jumping up and down. This is this is the escape. The same type of escape and possibilities that Rose Sandigat in it always rains on Sunday feels closing in on her. The price of a price is right offers that possibility out. Yes, you've made it to Hollywood. You've gotten a free ticket. Uh, you're 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 a person who jumps up and down. You're someone that the producers have zeroed in on that they're going to call your name. And and you better show it when you run. You better show it when they say, come on down, <laughs> you run, right? And, and and you ingratiate yourself in those couple of minutes of banter that you have with Bob Barker. And I think that's the reason why people like your grandfather, yourself, and millions of Americans tuned in. They say the super fan of, of the... Uh... Price is right as, as Adam Sandler, who became the producer of the show. And they say he was starstruck when he brought Bob Barker on the set of Happy Gilmore. And it, I guess, you know, he's in the news right now because he just made a movie, a very Jewish themed movie with, with his family. I haven't seen it yet, but it, it just came out on Friday about the, 
you're so not invited to my bat mitzvah. Let's let's give Sandler props here from the projectionist for owning up to his his Jewish heritage and you know playing positive Jewish roles. You know, again, as much as Adam Sandler could play, but you know he had to replace uh, Barker. Obviously, Barker was getting uh, you know, unlike Joe Biden. <laughs> who doesn't realize when it's time to retire. You know, Barker realized, I think back, it was 2007, that it was time to retire. Already in 1994, one of the episodes, instead of saying, please control the pet population, he said something about the truth, you know, uh, hope all your, your consequences are happy, but then he said, hope all your prices are right. Right, he sort of was getting confused. In other words, you're saying that as he aged, he was he was already suffering confusion from the plethora of programs that were somehow percolating in his brain between the truth or consequence. Look, truth or consequences, I think, was a way for the average American to sort of make fun of look what that guy is willing to do for money. Look what that person is willing to do. As we talk about Barker, you know, again, you know, we don't recommend this film because it's less than 40 years old, but there is a, a wonderful documentary called Perfect Bid, The Contestant Who Knew Too Much, which is about uh, Ted Slauson, uh, who was a super fan, and he was able to memorize prices of products, and um, he was able uh, to bid perfectly on the you know the showcase. Um, and uh, again, it's it's a wonderful look behind the scenes about the prices, right? Um, and again, why it, it, it carries so much fascination. Again, there, there is, of course, Jeopardy, which I think will always appeal to, you know, the, the intellectual, uh, trivia minded. And then I think, you know, the, you have the prices right. Again, maybe, um, I guess you have Jeopardy on one side, the prices right on the other. I guess Wheel of Fortune, I think is somewhere in the middle. You know, it's somehow, you know, it, it takes a certain amount of, you know, I guess, word skills, but I think it's somewhere in the middle between Jeopardy and, and The Price is Right, as you know, these these extremely long-running, unchanging, really, game shows. Many of the other game shows, including Password, uh, or, or, you know, they have to sort of create Super Password. Uh, you know, the, the $20,000 pyramid becomes a $50,000, $100,000 pyramid. Uh, you know, I, I think those are second tier compared to these big three, you know, Jeopardy, The Price is Right, and Wheel of Fortune. Um, you know, I think history shows that. Well, Yitzchak, you know, I, I think that the um, Barker was Barker was able to really, you know, grow in front of our eyes, grow old in front of our eyes, to live almost to be 100 years old. And I think he actually made an appearance in 2013. I think he showed up on April Fool's to uh, on the show. Let's give him credit for being game, especially in as he was really so much part of tapping into the psyche the desires of middle and lower class America. So watch your step on the way to everyone. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.